And welcome to a new edition of uh, In Conversation With. Uh, today I'm joined uh, by Adam Carver, uh, uh, who is a performer, arts commissioner, activist uh, here in Birmingham and the Midlands. And the reason why I wanted to talk to Adam is because I wanted to find out more about how lockdown has affected uh, arts in the Midlands in general, but also with a particular focus on individual performers like yourself. So, Adam, tell me a little bit about what what's the situation been like? Um, well, I guess the obvious part of that is that it's been a... We've lost the ability to kind of reach audiences in the physical realm. Um, obviously, when all of the, the venues shut, theatres closed, nightclubs shut, etc. Um, it was kind of like the the plug was pulled immediately out of the, the sink. Um, and I think it's been, you know, we're, we're 12 months obviously into this kind of lockdown situation or, or with venues, most venues being closed that entire time. So I think what, what it's really done for artists and for performers um, is kind of demonstrate just how fragile that gig economy is um, and how, you know, once you're, you're often because we're not in, you know, salaried positions, um, as soon as the venues close, your bookings go. And so your income is immediately cut off. Um, so I think, you know, on a very practical level, that has been the kind of first part of dealing with the world in which we find ourselves and the pandemic as a, a an artist and as, as a performer particularly. Um, and that was difficult, you know, it's been very tough. I think it's been emotionally quite draining because you kind of get used to or, or almost need that uh, reciprocity between performer and audience. It becomes a kind of part of how you're, you navigate the world. Um, and I think also a part of it is how you get a sense of yourself as well. Um, one of the things that I've become very aware of, because uh, I, I in addition to my work as a performer, I also work as a producer and I support other artists to help uh, them fundraise, deliver projects, manage projects, etc. Yeah, so I, I work with artists to help them bring their ideas to reality, to fruition. 
And that can be as simple as kind of helping them raise money, apply for funding, etc. But also kind of administrate, deliver, uh, act as a kind of... I work with artists and particularly queer artists to help them bring their projects to fruition and to be a kind of sounding board to provide kind of creative guidance and advice and a structure in which they can kind of develop their work or present it so I do a lot of the kind of behind the scenes work for them um and I I think that a lot of queer artists certainly in the Midlands but I, I'm, I know that this is the case beyond that as well have been incredibly reliant on nightclub contexts on commercial spaces cabaret to create work to perform work and often in those spaces you know you're brought in to perform and you get a flat fee that you you know invoice for and that's the work but I think what became very apparent when the pandemic hit and the the venues closed was that there wasn't a kind of infrastructure of support in place for queer artists um and many of them had never had to or felt able to navigate, you know, trying to secure money from other avenues or monetizing their own work uh, independently, or even just, you know, the Arts Council released um, in sort of summer, spring, summer 2020, emergency relief funding for artists. Um, but a lot of people, you know, were not confident enough or aware of how to kind of go about applying for that or you know jumping through the the hoops that you need to jump through to do that so I think a lot of my work in the last year has also been about supporting artists to kind of transition their thinking from a kind of service delivery side uh, version of, of performance to think about actually to legitimise their, their craft for themselves and to say that we need to, you are worthy of, of support and funding and, and to empower them to be able to kind of go through that. So I've, I've been supporting, I think about 20 queer artists to get um, emergency funding and then supporting others to help apply for funding to get projects on the go, to kind of build their, to make digital content or think about, you know different ways to do that and I've had to learn loads of stuff as well I've, I've never been a person who was particularly technologically savvy um you know I've got a very limited selection of uh <laughs> technical skills that are very strong but the rest of the, I've never been particularly interested in creating digital content uh because I'm my relationship as an artist is always with an audience um but I've also been you know responding to the year that we've had and I've been creating work and making sort of online events and performances which initially was kind of just a way to to raise money and to to keep myself afloat and to support some of the other artists that I've worked with um, but actually it's become a kind of whole new line in what I do and what my craft is. I want to talk uh, to you about that later, but first I want to pick up on one of your first points, which it seems to me, if I'm interpreting it correctly, that um, 
queer artists were particularly badly hit because in some ways they didn't consider themselves and also the institutions didn't consider them proper performers or proper artists. Am I right in thinking that? Yeah, I think that... I think the issue of legitimacy is something that I've encountered a lot in my work as a producer and an organiser. I think that... Often queer art, queer performance work, and specifically, I guess we're thinking, talking about drag and ballroom culture and uh, cabaret spaces. I think that the root of this is that there's a misconception that because a lot of that work is driven by aesthetic and by visual, because so much of, of you know, a queer understanding of ourselves or identity comes from a visual representation or a sense of transformation. Um, I think that that often what kind of non-queer society sees is something that feels like artifice or, or kind of a sense of falseness or something that feels superficial, um, which actually kind of ignores the the craft and the quality of the work or its political uh, leanings and impact. Um, and I do think that there's this sense that because we often tend to work with um, glitter and uh, sequins and, and a, a sense of overtness, um, that people take that work less seriously. But I've always considered those things um, to be kind of disruptive and to be weapons that are useful for us to both as a kind of sense of a reclamation of self and for celebrating ourselves as marginalised people, as people who in their day-to-day -day lives will be more likely to experience hate crime or to feel uncomfortable in their own selves and skin i think that, that a lot of queer work is about that sense of self-preservation and self-celebration and empowerment but i think it also allows people to kind of dismiss it so i do i i see a lot of the work that i do with artists about supporting artists who come from nightlife and cabaret commercial contexts to kind of rethink their their work which is not to change their work but to reframe it and to consider how do we bring that work into the spaces of more institutional um air quotes legitimate art spaces um yeah so i think that 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 is definitely part of it and i think also that you in a nightlife kind of economy there isn't the attention to not to quality, but the attention to programming, to curation, to relationship to audience, because the function of why artists are there is slightly different. Um, uh, there isn't um, a discourse around the performers and the performances that could then be 
uh, written about in particular ways or used to support, say, a grant application. Yeah. So it, it's there's an evanescence, or you know, a, 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 it's 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 work that uh, disappears very quickly, even though there is a social. Uh, communal discourse around that work. It's it, it never or very rarely reaches the stage of it being written down. It's all kind of, yeah, uh, discussions yeah. between friends. Like. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think also, I suppose as we move, as we're in a more, a much more digital age, and I certainly think the lockdown has has revolutionized this more is that it we are becoming much more savvy at documenting that kind of work and at creating that work in context where it can be replayed or relived or um explored in another way but i i think more the point is that the issue isn't that the work is different because i i think that you know, what, what a queer artist working in a nightclub will do is very similar to what a dance artist working in a studio theatre might do. Um, I think what there is is a kind of issue around language and how we what how we talk about the work is very different. In and, and I guess my role is, or I see myself as a kind of translator to help people articulate what they are already doing in a language that, an arts organization, a theater, a, a funder would understand. Um, I would go even further. I think there's a structural homophobia that's kind of built in. And actually there's also an internalized homophobia. I So basically, you know, the funding structures for art, culture, performance that exist don't exist to support this particular group of performers. And on the other hand, the performers also, I believe, don't think that their work is worthy of that support that you know they're just there to have fun on a club night or yeah and make a few bucks so so yeah that it, it's it's kind of something that suffers from both ends so to speak i don't know what what are do you have any views on this yeah i definitely agree with you um i think that the structures of the the systems that are the current sort of arts uh sector do not exist to support queer people and if they do support queer people it's still to keep them at the margins of that culture um you know you can look at where how you know from the data that for example the arts council puts out around how what percentage of funding goes towards uh lgbtq plus projects or towards artists and how much money actually goes to them um so i i think i like i i believe maybe for myself that i have really freed myself of that thinking and i i'm hoping that i can bring others with me on that journey to say well why can't there be you know a queer national theater or um a space kind of you know why can't we be looking to put queer artists on the main stages of venues and not just you know in sort of smaller scale projects i do think that that and that does obviously trickle down into a sense of how artists see themselves um in terms of their own legitimacy and whether people consider the work that they're doing the performance that they're doing whether they consider that art or not i think is part of that um and i think class probably comes into that as well because there's a sense of i think elitism or a sense of access to 
space or understanding language that that comes out of, of the opportunities that you have been afforded um the only thing i guess that that i think maybe i differ from you slightly on is more around the sense of like internalization um but this is because uh, a very wise person once said to me that there's no such thing as like internalized homophobia and um, because it's not something that we have done we have not internalized that it's something that has been done to us mm. um and i've always well, found I agree that with, like, I, I agree li- with that <laughs> i've always found that a very liberating way of viewing it and i think it positions what i think about the way that i work and the, the change that i'm trying to affect both socially but also within the wider kind of art sector is about drawing attention to the fact that this is not often i think our sense the sense of uh, illegitimacy or not being the right kind of art for spaces i think organizations are very keen to to put that the blame for that feeling like on the individual having you know feeling that way but it's not something that they have created and i think my my work is often to demonstrate to people how often unknowingly they participate in systematic homophobia and transphobia in ways that stops those artists being considered in those spaces or applying for things and just writing we encourage applications from <laughs> diverse communities on the bottom of your application form doesn't necessarily do the job of making um those spaces change so yeah i think that, that there is a, a sense of actually like that that has to come from the top down hmm. and it, it isn't the labor of change cannot solely fall to the people at the bottom of the the pyramid hmm. um or if it does they need to be you know adequately compensated for that um so yeah i see i see the that there's a lot to kind of unpack structurally there. Okay. I want to uh, talk to you about what you've done this year, which I think has been amazing, but I want to leave that to the end. And just, you know, for now, I believe there are two, well, campaigns might be uh, too strong a word for it, but there there are two things that you've been agitating on or, you know, being an activist on. One was the use of the Birmingham Rep, and the other one was a consultation with queer artists about what is needed in the Midlands. Perhaps there are more issues that you've been involved with, but those are the two that have caught my eye on social media. So I wonder if you could explain and elaborate on each of those and and others if 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 uh, I've missed any. Sure. Um, I think firstly that this is all kind of interconnected. That. The, what the pandemic has done, which is, has been, you know, for individuals, like, quite devastating, but I think it has demonstrated in very visible ways the fact that the the, the system that we had in place, uh, and I'm talking, I guess, about cultural institutions, but I think you could extrapolate this to a much wider series of contexts, weren't working prior to the pandemic. And so all that the pandemic has done is it's it's really kind of taken this from like a six to an 11, <laughs> um, turned the volume up on those discrepancies and, and the disparity um, in the sector. So, I mean, 70% of the cultural sector is self-employed, um, but 
arguably 90% of the power sits within institutions um, who are gatekeepers to money, to resource, to audiences. And often, uh, and this is not always kind of knowingly, um, but in the way that, that structures of oppression, racism, homophobia, transphobia, uh, I could continue, ableism, are ingrained into the fabric of the ways that organisations, buildings, institutions are built, utilise or seek to utilise the <clears throat> the reach, the experiences, the clout of marginalised people who are at the bottom of the, the food chain, artists um, and audiences, uh, to kind of tick boxes for uh, funding reasons or for diversity criteria or to, to uh, engage, and I'm putting this in inverted quotes again, hard to reach communities. Um, without necessarily building the kind of structures that would encourage those communities or artists to exist and flourish in that space. Um, and I think that's been evidenced in a way that a number of, of kind of organisations, both locally here in the Midlands and nationally, have, have acted. Um, and I think what we've learned before I go into any specifics, is that those relationships with audiences that venues cherish so much are much more fragile than we thought they were. And whilst it takes a lot of work to build trust and establish trust and community buy-in and a sense of safety and ownership in space, that can be very quickly eroded, um, almost irrevocably. Um, so one of the issues that I think that you're talking about here is is that um Birmingham Repertory Theatre uh which has sort of in the last two years undergone a complete uh organizational change uh, a, a change of administration as it were um in light of being closed for the pandemic have decided to turn the or to, to, to sort of make the theatre into what is called a nightingale court, uh, which feels very euphemistic to me. <laughs> um, this imagery of nightingale, I think, is a dangerous one um, because it just evokes to senses of, like, I don't know, freedom and kindness and, and a kind of weird British nostalgia that I think is very prevalent in our current political climate, um, but essentially it means that they will be functioning as a court. Um, and so, you know, for a lot of, there's been a, uh, a lot of backlash about that. And I wouldn't say that this has been, you know, my, my fight particularly, but I do think that it's a, one that I care about and, and support wholeheartedly is that ultimately, you know, the, the, our relationship as communities, audiences, artists, people who engage with venues is a relationship to space and it's a relationship to how we are perceived, how we feel, how we belong in that space. And that will govern how an audience, even before they walk into a performance, start to respond to the work. Um, and so theatres, the rep is a point in case, like do a lot of work or, or certainly pay a lot of lip service to speaking about how 
they want to be a space for communities, how they want to work with the communities on their doorsteps. Um, and they bring in, you know, initiatives to to do that. And they send artists to go out and work in those communities and to sort of build those relationships. And obviously that that will intersect quite a lot with with class and with race, um, trying to bring people because the, the theatre still is a predominantly white middle class space. Um, and so the rep is an interesting one because it's positioned on the edge of Ladywood, which is a area of, of the city that is uh, one of the highest levels of um, deprivation in the region, um, has a particularly high level comparative to other parts of the city uh, of black and Asian communities. Um, and so they've been doing this work or the previous administration was doing work to try and you know bring those audiences into the theatre and to build try and build theatre into cultures that it may not be an established part of yet um and so the decision to to open the rep as like a court space has been met almost universally <laughs> with the negative response that represent the only theatre to have done this. Also the Lowry and Salford was the first theatre to announce it. Um, this partnership with um, the prisons and justice system. Um, and that was met incredibly badly. Uh, and Birmingham Rep made a similar announcement midway through last year, which was met by a lot of black creatives who have, um, had previously had very strong relationships with the rep um with kind of shock and disgust i guess um because ultimately by becoming a court that space stops being a safe space it stops being a community space for a lot of people their first engagement with that building will now be as the place where you know that the a divorce was settled or um somebody was you know arrested or or tried for um and it's not for for sort of your high top you know big crimes but for this kind of middle tier crimes um and ultimately that we understand that there is an issue with systematic racism and uh, within the justice system that disproportionately impacts black communities particularly um, who account for a much higher percentage of arrests and prosecutions than they do the population, um, and who often receive, you know, more extreme sentencing than their white counterparts. And so I think because the rep was also part of a project called uh, More Than a Moment, which was a cultural response to the... Uh, resurgence of Black Lives Matter into popular discourse last summer and the sort of commitment to arts organisations in the Midlands uh, embedding anti-racist practice within their organisations. This was kind of a, the opposite of that. And I think that one of the, the big things for me is that those organisations, you know, theatres like Birmingham Rep, and they are not the only one by any extent, they have a space in a region or a city's cultural conception of itself. I think they exist more than just to be, you know, if, if this was a West End theatre, I don't think we would be kind of meeting this with the same response because ultimately they're kind of 
vessels for shows to go into and audiences but the actual engagement with the venue you're going to see Les Miserables you're not going to the Prince of Wales theatre I mean you are but but no one's cho- it's, it's, it, it, the choice is about the show I, and I think whereas regional theatres and you know certainly the city's only producing large-scale producing theatre People have an attachment to that space. They have a belonging to that space. And ultimately, that's what makes those spaces special because they make work that should, or they should be making work, that speaks to the communities there, that, that represents them, that that speaks to their issues, their experiences. And they play a different function. And I think the the issue here is that ultimately the damage there is kind of irrevocable or it's going to take a huge amount of work to repair because essentially the argument that the rep has put out is that that to they needed to do this in order to bring in money to keep the building open, which on the surface I think makes sense as an argument, um, although lots of other theatres have done this in other ways, have become testing centres or, you know, whatever else they need, vaccination points. Um, I think that it has sort of shown that these communities who the 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 organizations want to pay lip service to being so integral to their offer and to and and particularly i think we should say that like the arts council's funding strategy which which provides core funding for these organizations has shifted quite dramatically in the last few years to ensure that well that their word would be diversity which i think is a sort of not particularly useful term, but to ensure that we include representative inclusion and that communities, marginalised communities form part of, you know, from the top down, from the board right the way down to audiences and what's on the stages are adequately represented and included and part of that offer. I think that it became very clear that actually in this case, they were very dispensable um, over the need for you know, capital. And ultimately, the plans include the fact that when the rep does reopen uh, to audiences, some of its spaces will still be courts. So there will be people in that space who are coming to the theatre to watch whatever. And there will be people at the same time in those spaces who are, you know, having to sort of defend themselves or, or relive difficult experiences or, you know, go through like, a traumatic legal process um, and that will ultimately shift the energy the way that people engage with that space um, and I think it's been a very short-sighted decision and I think that there has been a lot of pressure made from the community the the cultural community and black communities particularly in the city and I guess like for me it's been about how do I amplify that continue to apply that pressure um I, I no longer feel, I think in the past I have felt very cautious of being critical of our institutions, in part because I've always been like, oh, what's my relationship going to be? There, there's a, a power dynamic inherent in this as a, an independent artist or producer, is that, you know, you're reliant on them for a commission fee or bookings or space or whatever. And so you it becomes, the act of challenging upwards becomes very difficult because of what you stand to lose. But I think that my attitude to that has changed because I think that ultimately I don't want to work with the organisations who 
are only prepared to pay lip service to a, a commitment to inclusion when it suits them or when it when they're filling in an application form, but actually aren't invested in the kind of community-based work that we actually need to affect change right now. It's su it's such a um, it's such an explosive idea to think that the theatre, you know, so often associated with freedom, contestation, liberation, you know, identification, now becomes a place for incarceration, for sentencing. It's like such a kind of the opposite of, you know, the 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 at least pop cultural meaning that one associates with what the theater represents. It's kind of, uh, 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 it seems quite incredible that that would have been something to choose. Um, the other thing that you've been involved with has been, uh, uh, I suppose, soliciting kind of queer artists about what changes they uh, would welcome in uh, funding in, the, in, in art structures in the Midlands. Am I right in thinking that? You were um, yeah, I, I mean, I think this is an ongoing occupation of mine. Um, in my previous work, I have, you know, been building kind of arts development programs for emerging early stages artists in the city to kind of give them opportunity and platform. And a lot of that has been based on the fact that I grew up in the city as a queer, hopeful artist. <laughs> and so and I'm, I left because I was just like, well, my understanding of Birmingham and what was happening was that there wasn't really anything happening that would ever involve me and there wasn't space for the kind of things that I wanted to do, the stories that I wanted to tell. Um, and I, you know, ended up coming back sort of by chance, really, and going, well, actually, no, I think the provision needs to be here. Um, so a lot of the work that I have done, yeah, has been in part about that. So recently I... I um, was asked by Birmingham Hippodrome to run a kind of consultation with uh, queer artists in the city about like what changes they wanted to see from the Hippodrome and from what space, like what they needed, what were their needs and what, how might venues respond to that? Mm. Um, which I think was a very fruitful and very productive conversation. As ever, I don't think we're reinventing the wheel here. Like often the things are access to money, access to space. Mm. Um, but also to think about, actually, there are, I see in artists here, uh, this kind of double impact of, of what I see in queer artists, particularly early stages queer artists nationally, is a sense of kind of inadequacy or feeling like they're not legitimate or they're not advanced enough to apply for something, which which stops, you know, the barriers are, are in our own minds. Um, and that's certainly something that I've had to overcome <clears throat> as an artist, uh, having made queer work for for young audiences, for children, and for outdoor spaces. It's like to actually give myself the permission to say you are allowed to do this and you are qualified to do this, um, you know. And I see that in others, um, but I also think, particularly in the Midlands, there's this kind of. I always say that I, I feel like the Midlands is like geographically queer. <laughs> um, and I, 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 in that, the way that the, the country, that the, the UK kind of, well, England particularly, views itself is this kind of north-south binary. And the Midlands sort of doesn't really exist in the northern powerhouse, and nor is it the south. And so often it kind of gets forgotten or overlooked, particularly. And, and what I think we've seen 
in our cultural institutions is that as that has happened progressively over a period of time, less and less investment, uh, there's less risk taking, there's less development um, going on. I see that for queer artists from the Midlands, this kind of additional intersection where a sense of kind of Midlandness also, I guess it can be quite self-deprecating mm. and it's quite quiet um, and quite insular sometimes, impacts both ways. So I see queer artists from the Midlands get less representation than, you know, on the on a sort of national queer stage. Um, in both performing arts and in visual arts. So I think that there is part of that. Obviously, we're also dealing with the fact that the, the city has, like, is one of the, the most, and I use this word again with sort of uh, a sensible measure of salt, uh, diverse um, cities. You know, we're rapidly approaching um, being a majority non-white city. We are working often people are in cultures that are more conservative or uh, faith-based where there are specific tensions i think for queer people in the midlands um that that impact the ways that organizations should be or or are able to talk about queer work to promote queer work to market queer work there's a sense of, of kind of if we I don't know, champion the trans community? Are we going to offend X community? Or how do we balance those those tensions um, that I think are quite specific here? Obviously, in 2019, prior to the pandemic, we the city was, was in the midst of a three or four month long period of, of protests about LGBTQ inclusive education in primary schools. Um, and I think that you know, that there was a 100% increase in homophobic and transphobic hate crime in the city in 2019. So we, I think that there are specific contexts to that. I think that we're also in a sort of battle, as many other places are, uh, with the limited queer spaces that we have being gentrified and closing. Um, and the pandemic has certainly exacerbated parts of that we've seen venues close as a result of that so access to resource becomes very difficult and often those spaces are you know the, the, the time takes longer so i often see you know opportunities for artists and i'd certainly felt this when i was in my early 20s that you know, your early careers artists often work will be like opportunities for 16 to 25 year olds. But for a lot of young queer people, they haven't necessarily come to terms with their identity as queer people mm. until, you know, that that period, that 16 to 25 point. And I think I was probably 25, 24, 25, when I was like actually in a point when I could start to make work that responded to my identity. Mm. Um, and by that point, you've missed the window of opportunity for those emerging spaces because you have to kind of go through this like second puberty. <laughs> um, and I think that the you know the systems haven't been in place to support that because they haven't had that kind of information, which isn't necessarily because the information hasn't existed, although in some cases maybe it hasn't been articulated or accessible well. Um, but I think it's just that that often the people who you know run the organizations or are in charge um 
aren't from communities, aren't from queer communities. You know, we, the last Arts Council report on organisations and staff employment had the Midlands at uh, half the national average um, in terms of LGBTQ employees working inside arts organisations. So national average is 8%, which is what they anticipate uh, the population roughly is of LGBTQ people. Obviously, there's no real data for that, that there will be after this last, uh, what's the word, census. Um, but the Midlands has four. And so, you know, there's a lot of questions that we need to consider about why is that the case? Is it, I, and I see it as, that you know, three things. One is that, like, retention i don't i think a lot of queer people do what i did and they leave, they leave because there isn't the structure for support and development and safety and comfort in space so they leave they go to manchester they go to birmingham up uh, to london and i also think that it hasn't been a priority i think that a lot of organizations haven't been monitoring for it and don't consider it um you know a uh, a need for change because I think there is this perception which that data proved absolutely false that the arts is full of gays mm. <laughs> um but often those uh, are not people who are in policy making positions mm. uh, so this is a wonderful opportunity or a break now to talk about your work uh which I must say I've been uh both aghast and admiring about what you've been doing in the past year so uh, so take me through it, yeah? So you find yourself in a, in a situation where there's no work and there's no money and you've got to do something about it. What have you done? Well, I made firstly the very smart decision of um, stepping down from my uh, job in February 2020 <laughs> to pursue working independently full time, uh, only to be sort of thrown into a global pandemic. So suddenly I was kind of like, oh, the thing that I have on my hands right now is a lot of time. Um, I have been working as a performer for a number of years and a theatre maker. Um, I work a lot with, with uh, drag and cabaret artists, but I haven't necessarily spent much time really thinking about like my performance persona or myself or, or kind of what I do. That was always very much an afterthought for myself as a, as an artist. Um, and I guess what I got was like the opportunity at the beginning of the pandemic to kind of figure out what that might be. So I, partly out of just absolute boredom and the need at the beginning of the pandemic, I was feeling the need to create in quite like an urgent way. I had just come out of a prolonged period of, of uh, mental health problems. I'd been been signed off work uh, for a while as well. And I had sort of come back to life only to be thrust into an international pandemic. Um, and so I was trying to find ways to kind of do things. And I guess what I, what I felt I needed was... I, I didn't wasn't in a position where I felt like I could plan for the future because obviously everything became so uncertain, but I needed something that felt like in the space of a few hours, I could go from the inception of an idea to seeing the finished product. Mm. And so I started kind of teaching myself how to do makeup and to kind of start exploring like what drag might look like on me. Mm. 
Um, and so I had always, like, I'd had the name in the back of my head for a while. So I've been performing now for over a year as Fat Butcher, uh, Fat with two T's, Butcher is in meat, Fat is in your mom. Uh, <laughs> and um, I was kind of like, well, let's see where this goes. And I guess the, the pandemic presented this point where I live, was living alone. Uh, I was incredibly bored and disconnected from people and um, this was the era of the the zoom quiz mm. uh, which i'm glad to have seen the back of um <laughs> but this so i thought well and i was also in a position where i was due to be touring a show with a company of 10 queer artists and suddenly overnight we lost 40 grand worth of bookings mm. Um, and all of, you know, a huge piece of income for the year. And I suddenly had all these, there, there were no, you know, the self-employment scheme hadn't been introduced. There was sort of nothing. And everyone just suddenly lost all their money overnight. I was doing okay because I'd built up, you know, some reserves and I had some work that I could do remotely. And so I started running this like weekly bingo, uh, drag bingo on Zoom. Uh, as an experiment, really, but mostly because I was like, do people want to come and do this? And then as I was talking about it, I was like, oh, maybe we'll just charge a couple of quid to go in, and then there can be some cash prices for the bingo, but half the money can go towards um, supporting the cast who are currently out of work and have no access to money. Um, and it just sort of took off from there, really, I guess, that, um, you know, we're now a year in to having been doing that almost weekly. <laughs> um, since and having built a kind of audience and it's really given me an opportunity to kind of learn new material to test things out to get better at hosting and, and improvising so i kind of feel like it's been a really intensive like performance development skills training for me um by accident so yeah i've been been making work and initially it was just kind of a way to do that i had been considering for a while that I wanted to stop performing under my own name because I was feeling a kind of tension between my kind of, well, at the time, what I considered my professional work, of course, all of the work that I do is professional, um, <laughs> but um, between the kind of going into organisations and sort of acting for change and, uh, you know, applying for funding and, and, and kind of delivering large-scale complex project management work i was feeling a tension then between like getting on stage and like not wearing very much and screaming at people and whatever mm. that I, I felt like i couldn't quite reconcile both of those things being adam carver um and so really what it was, was actually was this like the creation of a persona and a chance to kind of do something creative that didn't cost a huge amount of money to start with um I think it's marvelous. About I, I mean, it's almost like the original definition of the sublime that you look at with awe and horror, right? Because I think you're taking such chances as a performer, really. Kind of, um, you know, I mean, I've only seen the visuals, right? But it is like you know, kind of. I think you're creating something like really original and really powerful, you know but really out there as well, I think. Yeah, I think, I mean, it, it isn't what I think most, it's not the conventional image of what people might consider when they think of like a drag queen, for example. And I think some of that is about 
partly because I've been coming to terms with my own like identity as a non-binary person and understanding and having more space to kind of play with with understanding my own kind of gender and also like trying to reconnect to my body as like a fat person um and to regain a sense of kind of agency and desirability like in in that because i think particularly in in what in the gay community i use that word specifically here to refer to like gay men um there is you know a real issue around kind of body standards and what is the appropriate way to look and a kind of homogenous presentation of this like white muscular young thing which i have never been um apart from the white part mm. <laughs> um, so yeah i, I mean it, it is it's, it's kind of I feel like I take elements from like hyper femininity and like hyper masculinity and sort of put them together. Mm. I see that as like it's very much like having a, a wardrobe of like gender based options and just picking out what it is. Um, so yeah, I I am um, you know have a, a beard in drag, but I'm also bald sometimes and sometimes I'll wear hair. Um, often I don't wear very much. <laughs> um, a lot of it is about like a. a a sense of like body i think that i started out trying to and i, I think this is still kind of part of the work so i poke fun at the way that thin people behave um or the way that thinness is sexualized um and it is so it is a mix of, of that and cultural references i am really interested in kind of the ability to kind of just completely transform myself into something else because I feel, and it's a cliche, but it, it does give you freedom to ultimately be yourself mm. uh, in a way that like you, I would not have been able to achieve performing as myself, but without makeup. Mm. And it, it, it's interesting that I feel like I have found much more of myself as a human being through the process of creating a different person <laughs> mm. um but yeah so it is loud and it is kind of a bit messy and it's very sex positive and but i also think it's political and um provocative but in a way that i think is quite accessible to people have you um, been having success with it have, have, yeah you say you've had like these weekly uh, 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 bingos, you know, have audiences been increasing, and what's what's the audience been yeah. like? Yeah, I mean, we've we've had something like I, I did the math the other day, and I think about five thousand people have been through those shows over wow. the course of the year. And when venues did reopen in the summer, we were able to take the show and put it out into physical spaces. Um, I think what it's done is it's taken all the the elements of what I used to do before, and it's kind of package them together and I think in doing that it's become something that people can understand what it is and therefore care about a lot more I think that yeah I think it has been I, I'm amazed by how people have responded to what I do I think that my intention is always to try and find spaces that for the people in audiences to feel like joy and euphoria and kind of I see it as like without wanting to sound too lofty, that I see that there is like this kind of utopian world above me, mm. um, which is full of these kind of much queerer possibilities for a more kind of capacious and kind and joyful space. 
And on some points, I think that can really push into the sense of, of like euphoric uh, spaces. And I guess like what I'm trying to achieve all the time in my performance is like to open up a bit of that and let us have a look at it. And then from that, I get a sense of, of what the future could look like. And then the work is for me always about moving towards that. So yeah, it has opened loads of stuff up and the response has been like overwhelming and, and incredible. And not just through this bingo thing, but like through, you know, I, I post a lot of content on my Instagram. I've done a lot of digital performances for other shows. I've done live performances and I'm looking now at my diary for the rest of 2020. And as soon as the venues reopen in a few weeks time, there's very few weeks in the next year where I haven't got gigs and dates. So it has actually sort of by accident built a complete career change Fantastic. for me. Um, and I think that, yeah, people do seem to respond to it. I get a lot of messages from people who I think feel more like visible as a result of what we do and who have found, I mean, the, the best thing for Bingo is that we've built this community of people who otherwise, like, it's been, I, and I say, hear this a lot from people that I think, and for me as well, the show's been a lifeline. It's been a way every week that I can connect to a community of people and we can connect to each other and have a good time. And it's the closest thing that, that I've come across that feels like an eye owl um in the space of not being able to have one so i do think it's helped it's helped me to bring in more like funding for my projects because it i think gives a sense of togetherness to what i'm doing i also think that there's something about that i've been thinking a lot about recently which is this kind of i think being in drag affords you as a, a performer it allow it puts audiences in a position where they feel like they can have a very personal relationship or response to you even though you are literally like a caricature mm. um and i think some of what i do is kind of partly grotesque um but it allows people to feel like completely at ease or like that they can let go of some of their inhibitions a bit and i, I kind of been feeling like that really is what i'm trying to pursue now is spaces where i can pursue my own sense of liberation hmm. and try and evoke that in others all right great um just to end with what do you feel the last year has taught you uh so we you know we talked earlier about skills yeah kind of you know all these skills that you didn't have and that you didn't need and that you then felt uh, you you had to acquire so so that but also on a personal level which i think you've already touched on but if you could summarize um that's a big question uh i feel i think the big things that, that i've taken away from this are that it has taught me to recognize what my skills and talents are mm -hmm. and then how to use those to make to affect change, to make things better for myself or for other people. I think that it's, I, I have learned something that, that always feels very simple to say, but it's very difficult to live, um, to accept the things that I cannot change yeah. mm -hmm. and to stop feeling, I, I mean, I have been, you know, at points in this lockdown, absolutely despondent. Mm. Um, 
but I've sort of had a turning point at the beginning of 2021 when I've kind of got to a point where I'm like, this is out of my control. Um, all I can control is how I respond to this. Um, and I do feel like I, I've described this whole process as a period of, of alignment and it's not, it, it's not a process of discovery, but it is a process of like remembering and like feeling connected back to myself again uh, for the first time in, you know, decades maybe or ever, but a sense of like, so I feel like I, I, I've gained a sense of purpose that I didn't necessarily have before. Um, you know, I've obviously like developed some practical skills and figured stuff out but I think that all of that has allowed me to be much more open as a person to establish better relationships albeit with fewer people because we haven't been able to you know physically be out I have a better sense of what I want what my flaws are what I understand what I can do and what I can't do and I think I mean actually like I feel quite grateful for having had the space and, or, and time like forced to have it because I was never a person previously who took time off whoever like would be able to relax and constantly working um and I think that, that that's something that a lot of of queer people go through this sense that we have to kind of prove our worth continually by what we achieve professionally um and I have weirdly in sort of stepping back from that feel like I've achieved a lot more well that's a wonderful note to end on <laughs> Alan <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much uh, yeah it's kind of uh, very illuminating I think and kind of very important uh, uh, what you've just said so thank you thanks uh, thanks for having me Get down.